Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Far-Fetched Fables, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, wherever you're listening from. This is Farfetched Fables. Welcome to show number 35. This week we have just one story for you from author Mark Laidlaw, Children. A little background on Mr. Laidlaw. He was born in 1960 and raised in Laguna Beach, California. He attended the University of Oregon, where he tried and was discouraged by punch card computer programming. He's written a number of short stories and a handful of novels across the spectrum of genre, including fantasy, horror, and science fiction. His first novel, Dad's Nuke, was published in 1985 and was followed by several more novels over the next decade while he worked as a legal secretary in San Francisco. Mark played computer and arcade games in the early days, but was not impressed. It wasn't until the game Myst that his perception of these games changed. He obsessed over Myst and even bought a new computer just so that he could play it. With this newfound interest in computer gaming, he wrote The Third Force, a tie-in novel based on the world created by the computer game Gadget a game not too dissimilar from Myst, if I recall correctly. Working with game designers led him to feel that he wanted to help design an actual game. He joined Valve Software while they were developing Half-Life and worked on the game's story and level design. He later worked on Half-Life's expansion and Half-Life 2. For several decades, he has also been telling the occasional episodic tale of Gorlin, the bard with the gargoyle hand. Children is the third of these. He can be found online at marklaidlaw.com. Our narrator for children is Larry Oliver. Larry is a professional voice artist who enjoys reading, hiking, yoga, Zumba, and cooking. He has narrated several audiobooks available on Amazon, Audible, and iTunes, as well as documentary films, commercials, corporate training videos, and much more. You can find Larry at soundloud.com. As always, you can find the links for both Mark and Larry on the Triple F website. And now, this week's story, Children by Mark Laidlaw, as read by Larry Oliver. The first thing Gorlin heard as he mounted toward the walled village at the top of the rise 
was the sound of children, their voices tumbling down the rutted track to greet him long before he saw a single villager. This meant his first sight of the pinched gray roof peaks and ochre chimney spikes above the wall came accompanied by the peculiar mix of dread and longing that he always felt at the sound of children playing. Were they laughing in delight or screaming in terror? It was an old question, and in the first and most memorable instance, when the correct answer had actually mattered, he had guessed wrong. He had lived with that mistake ever since. It had been since his sister's voice then, yes, and he had thought her carried away by laughter. But it was something far different that had carried her off to a place he had no real desire to follow. He hadn't understood his mistake until he'd heard the sound of his childhood home, nestled in a sandy cove along the Pavenine coast, being crushed beneath the weight of a gargantoise that had chosen that spot and those tarry timbers for the construction of its spit-dauber and driftwood brood pile, where it would lay its oozy eggs and nest and doze for seven days. The cries of his parents he never heard, although they must have made some noise before the witless immensity smothered them. After that, he heard only the crashing of waves, the snoring of the huge armored amphibian. It was no wonder the sound of unseen children caused a surge of emotion, for they recalled the very instant of his orphaning. That was one song he had never written, it occurred to him, a theme for which he could imagine no suitable tune to strum. Why had he only thought of this now? Perhaps it was the name of the village, crudely scratched in a marker of weathered wood stabbed into the rocky soil at the side of the path. Children. C-H-I-L-D-R-U-N. Children. A designation based upon an ancient misspelling, enshrined by years. A founder's surname? or perhaps a place with long runs like those for kenneled hounds devoted to the cartwheels of lively tykes. Or it might be based upon some other etymology, a rustic homophone completely unrelated to youngsters. At any rate, it was a name, and the walled village promised rest, food, some coins to be earned sitting by a tavern fire strumming his edeldomer. He had been many days in these drear defiles, spat upon from unseen heights by green sleet and mossy gravel, wondering if the trail he'd picked would ever lead him anywhere. He'd found no sign of the hard black mineral supposedly mined by gargoyle sculptors in these mountains, which meant he might as well turn back. But he needed replenishment. Green mold covered his remaining bread and cheese, rendering them indistinguishable from one another. He prayed, even if children's folk were illiterate, there might be some seasoned chefs among them. This thought quickened his step. The city was gated. 
far from unusual in these lands, and the gates were locked, which was somewhat stranger. Children had the look of a place besieged, although it was far from apparent what it might contain worth subjecting to attrition. He eventually discovered a small bolt hole plugged with a wooden block on which he rapped as hard as he could. Given that his right hand was entirely formed of polished black stone, this amounted to a fair bit of noise. After a moment, the block was withdrawn and a lumpish face appeared narrowly framed in the stone slit. Ul! Gorlin! Visenfirth! My good man, wandering bard practiced mainly in Edeldamer, but not afraid to admit the occasional smoke bag solo is also something of a specialty, provided you supply one. I can hardly carry the apparatus on my own, you understand. I travel alone and lightly equipped, seeking only secure lodgings and permission to regale your neighbors with such tunes as I have collected along my route or devised myself. Azat Groof. Perhaps I might. Here, unstrapping his edeldomer, swinging it down so it lay across his abdomen, and striking the key sharply with the side of his black stone hand to bring out a bright, harmonic-like shaft of sunlight cutting between the darkening mountain ridges. But before he could get out more than a few bars into the laggard's wheel, the wooden chalk snugged straight back into its slot. The face was gone. Gorlin took a step back, too, and looked up at the wall that kept him from his potential customers. Appealing to the guard was anything but. This was not a soul he could hope to touch with music, or not his brand of it anyway. But still, down from the heights came the sound of children, and he suspected that if their sound could reach him out here, his might reach them in there. Leaning against the threshold, he began to play with abandon. Not a drinking song such as he might have employed to win the guard's affection, nor a sophisticated turandal, but a simple, cheerful melody accompanied at full voice. It was one part of a rondel, incomplete, fairly begging for other voices to join it. It was the oral equivalent of a sugar-frost vendor's cart bell jingling down the lanes of a sweaty summer city. Not a child had been born who could keep from running to such a sound. And indeed, there was a hitch in the juvenile clamor. The screams and shouts of the children faltered at one pass, as if all had been playing together in the same courtyard, as if they heard the music swirling and falling silent in unison. He softened the rondel a notch so they would have to move closer if they wished to hear him better. Gorlin kept one ear attuned for the sound of footfall, and although his ears were keen indeed, he heard no rush of children. What he heard instead was something harsher, a raw brain sound, coarse and greedy, that went on and on. He heard the children no longer. Perhaps 
They had all run inside, safe into their houses, away from this horrible din. His own plane, he realized, had also fallen off, although involuntarily. He bent his whole being toward making something of the sound, and even gave serious consideration to turning and striding quickly away from children. For better or worse, the decision was made for him by the movement of the sealed gate, which now swung outward, opening. The same porridgey face he'd seen before framed by a thick, rough swaddling of coarse black wool in cowl and cloak swam up between the halves of the gate. Marms I gotten. Gorlin parsed his sentence as best he could, wondering at first if he had strayed farther than he'd realized in recent days, then recognizing a semblance of known speech in the dialect. He had not traveled these mountains before, but the speech betrayed some similarity to that of regions he knew well. Ah, I thank you, he replied, stepping swiftly through the gate, only to be drawn up short by the sight of Marm. I do apologize, said the pale young woman in her bright taut cap and beige floral skirts. There were ribbons about her head, and these, in combination with the design of the headdress, tipped him instantly to her profession. Are you a traveling bard? For if so, you see, what luck! Please say that was you I heard playing the Edeldamer, and was that not a round I heard? It has been so long. Please say it was you. I will say almost anything you wish, Gorlin responded. And more besides, if you will give me the honor and pleasure of playing for you and your charges this evening. Her eyes grew wide. They were very green, except where flecked with bits of copper. Also coppery were the strands of her hair that mingled with the ribbons of her cap. Am I correct in my intuition, Marm, that you are indeed the schoolmistress of this fortunate town? You are indeed, she said, but fortunate in what way? Why to have you in such a position? Gorlin felt himself becoming carried away, and when she blushed, he sensed where this day would almost certainly lead him. So as not to leech away his luck, he bowed humbly and said, Please, do not think me untoward. I've seen caps of similar style in other towns, and I believe those ribbons, almost as pretty as your eyes, each indicate a formal mastery of educational subjects. So many, in fact, that I must put myself in the position of envying your students. Well, she said with a sudden darkening of demeanor, there is nothing to envy in that regard, as I fear you soon will see. For these ribbons, Mr. The Visenfirth is too unwieldy. Please do not trouble yourself with it. Gorlin is my name, I long to hear you utter. She gave him a sidelong glance, askance, and slipping her hand through his arm, began to lead him up a dim lane as the gate clanged shut behind them. You are rather forward, Mr. Visenfirth. He tore his eyes away from a waxy red cylindrical talisman that hung from a leather cord around her neck, 
like a stubby scarlet wand marked with crescent imprints. Recalling himself, he said, Ah, how lovely that sounds when you say it. I had always thought it a ghastly, bulky inconvenience of a name, but on your lips. She giggled. Please, this way. Do I then have you to thank for my admittance? Indeed. I heard your music. I could hardly let that pass. Although I fear you may end up wishing I had, I— Oh, I hope you do not resent me in the end. Unlikely. I will go so far as to commit myself to an emphatic impossible. I am here to play for you and all who will hear me. Thank you. Thank you so very much. And she squeezed his arm with great appreciation. It was about this time as she led him up through steep winding streets, through many turnings that would have defied even a concentrated attempt at memorization, that he noticed how closely they were being watched, not from every doorway, stoop, or window, but from most of them, from half-ajar doors, from shabby curtains flicked momentarily aside, from peepholes and deep within alleys. Everyone stared as he passed, and he was immensely grateful for her company, her protection. He realized, Great goodness, I have divined your occupation, but not your name. Ansela, she whispered in a voice that acknowledged his fear for his safety, was not unjustified. Ansela Cordaccio. Let me speculate, Ansela, that strangers are not often seen in this town, and when they are, hardly welcomed. This certainly put holes in his plans for sitting freely in a tavern. In such an environment of hostile suspicion, one might find nothing but resident inns. It was not always thus, I regret to say, but recently, over the last some odd years, in fact, most of the time since my own arrival, it has been more and more as you perceive. You are not then a native? Dear, no, I was born in Riverend. Ah, the special bridge. You know it. Splendid. You will almost certainly have more recent tales of my home than I can recollect. I hope you will share them this evening. My pleasure. But how came you? After my education in the academy at Currish, I was hard-pressed to find any post. I confess, this was the first that came my way, and I had not the luxury of waiting for a more glamorous assignment. Very pragmatic, so I've been told. If I were more idealistic, I might not have come, I suppose, or I might have left here by now but I feel a certain devotion to my charge. If not for me, well, what then? Her face had grown so thin that he did not wish to push her down this avenue. They were near the top of the town now, and coming toward a tall, steepled building built of unpainted boards, its shingles warped and green with moss, of a design so different from that of the residence that he took it for the schoolhouse. Now, she said, you have gratefully offered to play for us, so I must first make the offer worth your while. 
If you will perform, then I can offer you board at the school. There's plenty of room and more than enough food. You not only educate but feed your pupils as well. The townsfolk provide ample fare, as you will see. Now, if we have time before the meal, it might be best. The square before the schoolhouse was busy with villagers coming and going. On a long table before the front door, they were laying out gifts of food like offerings, pies and loaves of fresh-baked bread, pies and more pies. It did not seem a particularly balanced diet for the needs of growing children, although certainly it was to the taste of any child. And although Gorlin himself these days preferred savories to sweets, the sight of such a sprawling dessert evoked childhood fantasies of living in a world made entirely of edible treats. Had he come on some festival day? Whatever the occasion, it would be hard to imagine a greater contrast than that between the grim, shifty-eyed boogers with mouths like twisted scars and the merry cream-slathered trifles they set by the board before darting off resentfully into the shadows. Ansela gave a short sigh and took a large ring of keys from her flowery pocket, then wrestled briefly with the massive front door. Villagers tipped their hats to her and pretended not to notice Gorlin, who began to contemplate the potential for an outdoor recitation. However, he did not wish to be rewarded entirely in pies. Would you mind, she asked, balancing massive pastries in each hand, Gorlin, not wishing to draw attention just yet to his immobile right hand, slipped his wrist through the handle of a basket loaded with sweet puffs and fruit tarts while gathering up a twiggy bundle of brittle sugar faggots in the other. He went behind her, down a dark hall, then out into the somewhat brighter classroom with hazed windows on its far wall. School desks, Stools and benches were pushed back to make room for a long communal table. She sat her burden down on a large table, then returned to the street to bring in the rest of the pastries left by the townsfolk. Gorlin followed her example. Only when they had retrieved the last pastry and shut the door to the street did he realize it had been some time since he had heard the children shrieking. He presumed they had been called in by their parents, but the conduct of their teacher made him wonder if they might be bent to their studies, in which case who was instructing or supervising them. And quite apart from the laughter, what of the horrid sound that had interrupted it in the first place? The walls of the classroom were lined with faded drawings. Whatever children had drawn these were apparently limited to pigments mined from the dreary mountains that surrounded them. Smudgy strokes of cinnabar and lead, drab yellows, finger paintings done in mud. All color had leached from the place. Gorlin had never spent any of his own childhood inside a schoolhouse, 
but he had seen plenty of them in his travels, and it was rare to find one not done up in colors meant to match the cheer of the children. Here he saw tackheads holding nothing but shreds of old torn paper imperfectly removed. He wondered what the children he'd heard could have found to laugh about in such confines. And now, she said tentatively, taking his elbow again, bring your instrument, if you will, and come through here. At the far side of the classroom were two small dingy windows, and centered between them a door. He thought he heard the murmur of voices on the other side, children in conversation, muffled and whispering. But as Ansela put her hand on the knob and turned it, as the old hardware creaked, the voices stifled instantly. He found himself staring out into a flagstone courtyard, completely surrounded by windowed walls, with one antique, atiolated willow mourning in a corner. In the center of the court, where the children must have once come to frolic between lessons, was but one child. The destination of all those pies was suddenly obvious. The boy was immense. His eyes small and black, his mouth wide enough, his mouth wide enough to more than earn the appellation Batrachian. A few strands of lank black hair lay damp across his dome-like brow, and but for those strands he was entirely hairless. He also lacked a neck, the child reminded Gorlin of nothing so much as a huge egg, peeled and incompletely boiled. Squatting in the midst of the courtyard, it devoted all its energy to not tipping over. Fat legs jutted out like the points of a broken tripod. Gorlin realized the boy was leaning back against a second willow, this one completely stripped of leaves and most of its branches. A reminder of greener days, it served the child as a scaly gray prop. Here we are, Ansela said brightly, and he did not understand the reason for her merriment until he realized she was not speaking to him, but to the child as one would speak to a very young and temperamental babe, or to an idiot. The child's behavior instantly confirmed his conjecture, for as soon as she spoke, it began to bang its heels against the flags and set the bare twist of willow shaking violently. Gorlin would have held back, but she held firmly to his arm and tugged him forward. I've brought you something wonderful today, she said. Music, lovely, lovely music. Did you hear it a little while ago? I thought you had. I thought for certain I heard you calling. Isn't that right? Oh, isn't that so? She turned to Gorlin with a wide smile, grinning and nodding at him until he could only nod and grin back like a lunatic, understanding none of it. Were they to humor the repellent child? Now, this nice young man, she said, is a bard. He's the one you heard. See this lovely instrument he holds with its strings and polished wood? 
That is called Edeldamer. Edeldamer. Now, he's going to play his Edeldamer and sing you a song, one I'm sure you'll like. You'll like that, won't you? The egg regarded them with watery confusion. Then it began to bleat. He recognized the sound as a very gentle warning of the greater horror he had heard from outside the gate. No wonder the other children had ceased their play and fled when this monstrosity began to wail. No, no, she said, deftly swooping in to take one of the child's tremendous hands and begin to pat it. He'll play now, and you'll eat after. Isn't that all right? You always like to sleep after you eat, but you wouldn't want to miss this. We don't know how long Mr. Fizzenforth can stay. Let's hear him now, shall we? And then you can, then you can, Mr. Fizz, Corlin, why don't, why don't you? Truly, it was a sound that would have rattled anyone's concentration. He could hardly believe she submitted herself daily to such a force of ill nature. Gorlin stood his ground. Although his one desire was to bury his fingers deep in his ears and back steadily away. Quickly, he unslung his Edeldamer and began to play. Not the rondel he'd started on earlier, as there were no voices to join in, but a tune much simpler and more direct, a song of childhood, and in fact one originating in the province of Twilk, whose capital was Riverend. When Ansela realized he was playing it for her, she raised her eyes from her student and gave him a grateful glance. Nervously, she plucked the waxy red wand on its leather cord and began to gnaw at it, red shavings gathering on her teeth. He realized it was not a talisman, but a crayon, a teacher's stylus for correcting student errors, arithmetic mistakes, and the like. He had spent so little time in school that he'd hardly recognized it. As Gorlin played, the child watched him fixedly, his mouth pressed shut. There was grave suspicion in those eyes, although it was surprising to see anything in them, considering their resemblance to a crustacean's glossy black eye spots. The child lacked eyebrows, or apparently, even lids, from which Gorlin could extrapolate joy or displeasure, but at least Ansela looked relieved. He could not have been doing badly. At least that was until one of his strings broke. One moment, with apologies, he cried, and dug into his knapsack to pull out a coil of bright new wire, and he replaced the wire quickly but he could feel those fat heels drumming at the flagstones and sense the child's growing impatience, even as he hurried. In fear of his physical well-being, he over-tightened one peg and struck a high, sour note and instantly regretted it. The child threw back his head and wailed, howled like a mire wolf, calling to its pack. "'Oh, no, my dear,' cried Ansela. There, there, all will be well. Just a moment, my dear, just a moment. The nice man will soon make the pretty music again. You'll see, won't you, Gorlin? 
pleading in her eyes. His ears now ringing with the shock of sound, he nodded mutely and began to play again, hoping this would calm the brute. And indeed, his strategy was effective to a point. The piercing wail cut off, but in its place was another sound more disturbing. The sound of weeping. It was a weird chorus of voices. Children's voices. If he closed his eyes, which he did to hide the face of the animated egg, he could almost imagine that the courtyard was full of distressed children. Yet they all had one source. It was an uncanny performance. There, they're happy now. Happy? She said, and the tone of the voices began to change. The cries faded out, turning gradually more garrulous as Gorlin played, and soon he realized that this one throat had given rise to the sounds he'd heard outside the gates. The entire range of children's voices had emanated from this child. Ansela must have seen his dawning wonder, for indeed it was a miracle that such lively and beautiful noise could pour from such a gullet. She must have felt her charge's mood had stabilized sufficiently that she dared to reach out and touch Gorlin lightly on the shoulder with a nodded promise that all would soon be clear. Once he'd finished that song, he turned to a more festive birthday jig in honor of all the pies spread out in the next room, and that in turn spurred him to laugh out the words to the pie-so-long song for the first time in many seasons. By the end of it, he felt quite jolly, and Ansela's mood had also lifted. As for the child, his mouth had closed in a sleepy grin— almost attractive in its elongated way, and the courtyard enjoyed the benefits of its master's contentment. Even the naked willow seemed relieved. Why don't we bring him something to eat? she said, just above a whisper, wiping red wax from her two front teeth. Gorlin went to the task with a will, anything to put some distance between himself and the now peacefully grinning child and to have a chance for a moment's conversation out of the lad's hearing. Back in the classroom, he loaded her arms with pies, and as he held the door to let her out into the courtyard again, he dared. A moment, Ansela, if you will. Yes, he does not like to be kept waiting, Garland. He is sure to be famished. I'm sure not. I just simply... it is the child an idiot? She pursed her lips delicately. We do not use that term in the academy, she said. He has been traumatized, no doubt, by the gradual disappearance of his many classmates, and never has he been completely what you would call normal. And yet, yet he has wonderful gifts. Gifts? These had not been at all apparent. Why, surely you noticed. He is a splendid mimic. Ah, the myriad voices. That is certainly remarkable. Yes, remarkable. We are fortunate to have him, although he is the only one left. What became of the others? I can't believe the Academy posted you here to care for a single child. And, if I might say so, your 
current task seems more suited to a nurse or nanny than a highly decorated marm. Your ribbons seem wasted when your only charge is so... He held off using any word she might find offensive if idiot had been meant with approbation. He could only imagine her response to moronic. When I took the post, the school was full and bustling, but that did not last long. I arrived just as a shadow had begun to fall across. But now a shadow fell across her features. From beyond the door, the beginnings of a titanic moan, the edge of greediness beyond mere hunger, brought him again to the all-devouring sound that had come keening through the gate earlier that afternoon. We'd best... She shrugged with her burden of pies, and Gorlin opened the door. A thin pink tongue darted from end to end along the mouth's extensive lower lip, like a lizard running back and forth along a mossy wall. Now he saw that the eye did indeed feature lids, for they drew open wide at the sight of the numerous pies. The black knobs protruded slightly, lending credence to his earlier suspicion of crustacean incestry. He felt he had seen such eyes deep in the dark cracks that clove these forsaken mountains. Usually, these were watchers that shrank from light or movement, so that one never had any more than the vaguest impression of their form. Still, the white hands that came grasping from the pies were those of a pudgy child, in the way the child ate was purely human, spoiled beyond belief. Human hunger, human gluttony, a childish human rapacity for self-indulgence. So very spoiled. There were more loads of food to be carried out before the table in the classroom was cleared. One loaf slightly less sugar-encrusted than the others. Ansela held back for herself and Gorlin. The rest went into the cavernous pit of her pupil's mouth. Maw. Gorge. Such words came readily to mind as Gorlin watched him eat. It was a squeam-inducing sight. One benefit of the heavy traffic into that mouth was that sounds ceased emitting from it, other than the noises of gulping, gnawing, and slobbery mastication. The troubling echo of a children's chorus did not intrude on the meal, for which Gorlin was obscurely grateful, although he could not have said why. There was something horrible in the cosmic indifference upon that vast visage something wholly at odds with the spontaneous clatter of excited, remembered voices. So, a mimic, you say, and these sounds? They were gathering up empty pie tins, old cracked plates, bread baskets, and retreating with them back into the classroom. The table was heaped with the remains of the child's meal. The cries of his schoolmates, yes. He makes them to amuse himself, I believe, for he is so stricken and lonely. This is his way of expressing 
feelings of loss. Can you not hear how forlorn those calls are? He has such a remarkable talent that at times I can almost make out the individual voices of his classmates, my former pupils. How they used to play around him, right here in this very yard. Between lessons, such energy, such bright times. It could not have failed to make an impression on him, although he was, much as you see him now, seeming to take little note of those around him. But I can hear it in the cries. How much he misses them. It is a forlorn mimicry, is it not? Loading his arms with empty platters and pans, Ansela motioned him down the hall to the front door. Gorlin followed, but his mind was far from the chores of cleaning. It certainly gulled me when I first heard it, he said. I thought the village overrun by children. That is what it sounded like when I first arrived. He replaced their sounds endlessly and in endless variations. It is his only pleasure, besides eating. I was going to mention that as the more obvious source of satisfaction, he realized he had not completely expunged a tone of ironic judgment from his voice. Yes, he is spoiled, she quietly conceded, hesitating before she opened the door into the square. The villagers cannot help themselves, and I can hardly blame them. He is the last child, after all. If Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. They were to lose this one, what would they have left to hope for? What future? So I do my best. That is why I cannot leave. I have grown accustomed, attached even. And besides, the Academy has no other postings for one of my limited qualifications. She opened the door, admitting the dim light of early evening. The square was quiet but not unpopulated. In fact, a small crowd of citizens had gathered at the edges, and 
seemed to be watching with great interest as Gorlin followed her out into the light and set his clattering load upon the common table. Several of the villagers came toward to reclaim their housewares. They gave him sullen, even hostile looks before trudging off to their cheerless, childless homes. These were the parents, he realized. Who else but the bereaved would have bothered to feed such a child unless they saw him in some connection to those they had lost? He could not imagine what they must have felt hearing their children's shrieks parroted back to them forever beyond reach. He felt a pang of pity for the whole village, but was still relieved to retreat into the schoolhouse and pick up the thread of their conversation. So, you have considered changing locations? Gorlin asked. Why deny it? She shut the door and turned, putting her back against it, a look of resignation, aging her prematurely. This was hardly what I pictured even in my most despairing moments, when it seemed the Academy was sending us into a world that had no use for education, no interest in the betterment of its children, a world proud even of its own ignorance. Well, said Gorlin, we must do something about this. No situation can be considered permanent. My way may take me through other towns that would almost certainly use you better. That red crayon of yours needs errors to correct. If you like, if you trust me, that is, I would be happy to carry your credentials to tout your qualities to any town with something more to offer than this dreary place. I I think I do trust you, Mr. Visenfirth. Again, Ansela, my name is Gorlin, and he touched her cheek with his left hand. This caused her to glance down at the right one, which he had so deliberately not used. There is a story there? she said quietly. Is there not? There is, but too long to be told in even one long night. And you will be traveling on in the morning? There's little call for a bard here, and I suspect your student will soon grow weary of me. She nodded, admitting the truth of this. Gorlin figured that the allure of anything but more pie would quickly pale on the particular child's appetite. And this hand of yours, she said, reaching down to take his right, is it the only part of you so formed? Of cold, hard stone, you mean? Yes. The rest of me is warm and soft, mostly. Upstairs, several rooms belonging to the school marm, which must once have seemed a luxury of sweets for a young teacher fresh from the academy. There was little joy in them now. She fixed them a small supper, a salad of shredded roots with crumbling cheese and a loaf of bread she'd spared from the child's repast. The child himself, as she had foretold, followed his meal with a sudden torpor and had made no further sound. Gorlin found himself thinking hard as he sopped vinegar from the salad bowl and sucked it from the softening crust of bread. Such a gift of vocal mimicry was common among certain creatures, although one associated it more with 
birds, of course. There was nothing bird-like about the child except his exaggerated resemblance to some kind of soft-shelled egg. And for a creature with such a finely tuned ear for subtle gradations of human speech, it was odd that the child had never attempted to sing or hum along with Gorlin's tunes. The Edeldommer's notes, or at least the songs Gorlin sang in accompaniment, would have made a fine subject for emulation. But perhaps the act of mimicry relied on some sort of traumatic episode to force imprinting. The absence of his classmates had caused the child to recall them in the only way available to him, which thought led Gorlin to the obvious question, although he refrained at first from asking it. Ansela was lovely by firelight and lovelier still when she untangled the vocational ribbons from her copper locks and put aside her teacher's cap. Only her red crayon she did not shed, at which he had to admit he found rather charming. He did not want to ruin the mood by probing children's, no doubt, depressing history. A gloom of loneliness pervaded the town. If he could do anything to push it back, to illuminate even this one room, he meant to do so. He played the Edeldommer and spoke of Riverend as he'd last seen it, as it had always been, a creased valley deep in the shaled mountains, where the river in question, namely Garrisel, came down from perpetually snowy peaks, passed under the ancient spiral bridge, and fell away abruptly and entirely in a whirlpool. The swirling funnel churned away forever, swirling endlessly down a vortex that carried it away beneath the earth. It was a place where those who wished to forget things went to forget them. Jilted lovers wrote the names of their ex-partners on vellum boats and sailed them into the current. That was one romantic use. Other writers of the spiraling waters, only slightly less frequent, were the spurned lovers themselves. But in a far less dramatic manner, the maelstrom had also taken in rotten fish heads without number and the contents of countless garbage bins. He had heard of the beauty of the whirlpool throughout his life, but no one ever mentioned the copious rubbish and the fetid debris strewn along the cobbled banks. She laughed at his story, which was nothing new to her, but a memory shared shines brighter for it. And he could see the thought of her home warming her in all her parts. Nor was his talk of lovers completely innocent or without result. It was not very long before they dozed together in an afterglow that seemed to permit more direct questioning than he had earlier dared. And, indeed, no longer in fear of scaring her off, he broached what was surely the most terrifying subject of all. What happened to the other children? He asked as he lazed. She was idly scribbling red spirals on his chest, lying over him with her red crayon dangling. You said they went away gradually, yet how? And as if this were not enough to start the conversation, he could not keep himself from asking the flood of questions that had been crowding in his mind all evening. 
And how is it you came to take sole charge of the lad? Where are his parents? He was a foundling, I'm told, left at the village gates in a night when the mountain streams ran to flood. This was only a short time before my own arrival here, but the most popular conjecture is that he was mothered by some impoverished woman scarce able to feed herself. You must have noticed the harshness of the terrain along your way. A stingy county, indeed, Gorlin agreed, and yet generous in finding such a village to take him in. Although I imagine they were glad enough to accept an orphan when their own offspring were disappearing. Oh, but none had been carried off just yet. That commenced after my arrival. I guess you are fortunate they have not blamed you for the disappearances. He found her soft fingers, suddenly covering his mouth. Do not even jest about such things. Do you not think that fear has gnawed at my heart since the first child vanished? Yet the villagers blame me not. They are most emphatic about this. There has always been another event to blame for the vanishing, and in each case they have felt their guilt to be greater than anyone else's for not seeing the signs, for not doing all they could to prevent it. And what event was this? I know it is not at all apparent from the town's demeanor in this dark time, but once the village turned a friendly face to the world, the gate was always open. Travelers were common, thus it was when I arrived, but gradually we realized that every child's disappearance was linked to the arrival of a stranger. Gorlin felt a chill beginning, different from any foreboding he had felt so far in children, less sourceless now, something very like an icy accusatory finger that had begun to tap upon his bare shoulder. What? Which stranger? Oh, no particular sort, not at first. It could have been anyone, but after the third disappearance, we noticed always there was someone about, someone unseemly, someone never seen here before who appeared one day and disappeared the next. He might have been a merchant or a tinker, a peddler, or a wandering monk. As I say, at first we suspected no one, but gradually we, well, I mean, they began to suspect everyone. Every strange face that appeared was suspect of being the next abductor. Still, the village's innate hospitality held sway. All visitors were welcomed, even though with less open gladness than before. This was only natural, for as sadness took hold, it began to cover the whole village with its shadow. So, any sort of stranger wandering through... A bard, perhaps. I do not recall a bard ever before, she said, not in connection with the child's disappearance. It is strange now that I speak of these things for the first time in many months that we have never uncovered any connection between the isolated strangers. Nothing, that is, apart from the fact of a child's abduction. It seems a very fragile thread from which to hang an accusation against someone you scarcely know. He realized he was slowly drawing away from her beneath the coverlets and estimating the whereabouts of his scattered clothes. And these strangers, what, what became of them? Why, nothing, of course. They vanished in the night, along with the children. 
That is why, eventually, the villagers came to see such a clear connection between the two events. But, as their grief grew, so did their unwillingness to let this happen again. Thus, they took to locking the gate, even during the day, as you have seen. Gorlin sat up and slowly pulled on his garments. Why do you rise at this hour? As a stranger in this place, I find myself suddenly ill at ease, he said. Say, I wish to try the gate at this hour of the night. Do you think I would be permitted to leave? I very much doubt it. Not at any rate until the whereabouts of all the children, she giggled. Which is to say, the child had been verified. That would only take a short time, however, and then I'm sure all would be well. Gorlin was not able to share her certainty, especially now that he was quite sure he heard stealthy shuffling steps somewhere nearby. The chamber had one small lozenge window, which he unlatched and opened a very small amount, having first ascertained that the room's one lamp had been snuffed. He peered out through the slit and found himself looking down on the public square where the villagers had heaped pies that afternoon. It was a dark night, moonless, but there was enough ambient light to show him that the square was thronged by darker shapes, all moving quietly, wordlessly, toward the schoolhouse. He closed the door as quietly as he could, then, stifling the strings, he picked up his edeldomer and slung it over his shoulder. Gorlin, where I know you meant nothing by it, my dear, or at least I hope you did not, but I must now inquire as to the possibility of a back door from this place. A back? Are you leaving, then? I'm afraid I must, my dear Ansela. You may find nothing suspicious in my demeanor, but your villagers, I fear, are not as charitable. Now, meaning no harm, I must ask again, there is no other door. That would have made it difficult to keep the children from slipping away unnoticed. However, a time or two, one spry child was known to climb the old willow in the corner of the yard and thus gain the top of the wall. From there, alleys will lead you off through the town. But, Gorlin, all the village gates are locked at this hour, and no one will open while you are loose. Matters to trouble me another time, he said. Hopefully not so long from now. Now, here for you a kiss, sweet, so sweet. She had begun to rise and pull her own raiments on. And now I must be off. I will carry word of your academic expertise to other towns, I promise, and soon perhaps you will hear from another of these institutes, one with a more wholesome student body. I would hope, with that, he stepped into the hall and headed for the stairs. The villagers must have considered the school their public property, for even as he reached the darkened classroom, he heard a key turning in the front door down the hall. But that was not his avenue anyway. He moved quickly to the courtyard door and let himself through. Out in the courtyard, cut off from whatever light reached the square, he found himself in utter darkness. He stood very still for a moment, trying to recall the layout of the place from that afternoon. 
a simple rectangle, featureless except for the willow in the center and the other in the corner, which ought to be at his left hand now. If he crept straight ahead till he reached the far wall and then moved left, he would surely find the corner and the tree with its promise of escape. Taking short, shuffling steps, he advanced very slowly, trying to ignore the sounds growing louder behind the classroom door. He glanced back once and heard a murmur of muffled voices, and then a dim light bled across the dingy glass as if someone had struck a match or lit a weak taper. Shuffle, shuffle a few more steps, and suddenly he realized the light was growing brighter, bright enough to see his shadow ahead of him on the flagstones. Surely he had not reached the far wall, and yet his shadow ended abruptly and flung itself upon a pale, smooth surface too smooth and pale to be the opposite wall. Behind him, the door was creaking open. Ahead of him, the light it let loose glimmered briefly on two glossy black knobs, set in the pale wall like handles he might seize to pull himself aloft. But these eyes went up and up above a growing darkness, vast and complete enough to steal his shadow. His toe caught on a rubbery edge, more aptly, a lip, and because, in spite of himself, he had started to panic and to hurry, his momentum carried him forward, off balance, and over he pitched into the pitchy black. He lay there a long moment, with his eyes shut, waiting for the villagers to set hands upon him, to drag him back into the classroom, to begin to do whatever it was they did to the strangers they caught in their midst. With one child left in the town, one child to spoil and protect with all their number, he suspected they had very few reservations when it came to dealing harshly with strangers. They had prevented this last child from being abducted for, for how long now? He had never thought to ask. Well, perhaps they would answer one simple question before thrashing the life out of him or pitching him into some cell where he might land upon the bones of other unsuspecting travelers. But no hands fell upon him, and in fact, he heard nothing now of his pursuers. The floor was wet and sticky, but not so far as he could tell with his blood. He was unharmed. He could not imagine why they had let him alone so suddenly, but he did not trust their reluctance or change of heart to last. He might as well find the willow while he was at it and hoist himself over the wall and see if it might not be possible to leave the village by way of the rooftop scampering. Shuffle, shuffle, a few more steps, and then his paces grew longer. With his right hand out before him, he waited for the clink of stone against stone, but waited in vain. Soon he was striding briskly along before he stopped in sudden realization of the vast interior into which he belatedly realized he must have strayed. Good grief, he said aloud and thought. He swallowed me, like one of his pies. The blackness beneath the beady eyes could have been nothing but the child's enormous mouth. The notion was so right that he wasted not a moment disputing it, but immediately tried to turn exactly half a turn around and head back in precisely the opposite direction he had been heading. 
But suddenly the ground, which had felt so level before, seemed a slope in a sheer upward one at that. The darkness was designed to disorient him, and his reluctance to become a willing participant in his own further ensnarement. He stopped and immediately sat down. This would take some thought, some cunning, neither of which emerged out of panic or panicked flight. The best thing to do, as always, was to give himself time to think and a way of evoking his deeper mind, the clever nature of which ran dark and unseen, but still quite tangibly beneath his ordinary surface thoughts. He equated with the improvisations of music, for they were much the same. His Edeldamer found its way into his lap, and he began to strum and play, stretching out calming patterns of sound through which he might weave patterns of thought, substantial enough to support more weight. The unexpected result of his song was not, as he had hoped, the quieting of his own thoughts, but the sudden raising of other sounds from all around him. Voices began to call out, worried, cautious, questioning. Who's there? What's that? Do you hear it? Is it real, then? The music? Do you all hear it, too? I thought it was only me. But it's not. It's real. It has to be real. Gorlin silenced the strings and listened afraid that he himself was imagining only what he might have wished to hear. They were the children's voices, and as the music stilled, they grew more plaintive. No! It stopped. Why did it stop? Please, no! Gorlin strummed again, and then began to hammer and slide on the strings. All the voices fell quiet. He played for several minutes before breaking off to say, the music you hear, it's real. I'm real. None of us could have imagined this. The darkness was full of gasping amazement. He could almost see the awestruck eyes of the children gaping through the dark. But of course he could not. He had only sound to go by. Fortunately, he was expert in its uses. Where are you all? he asked. Where are any of us? called one voice. Inside, the same as you. No, but I mean, where inside? Are you together? Are you near me? Those things mean nothing here, said another voice, older than the first, more worldly and despairing. We're just lost in here. All of us. Forever. We've given up. You'll give up soon, just like the rest of us. Stop looking and trying to find each other. Several younger voices pitched in for a moment. No, stop, I want my mummy. Your mum's not here. None of them's here or ever will be here. So shut your bawling. But that only made it worse. Several young wailing voices carried through the dark, while older voices groaned in misery. Now you've done it, complained the strong, clear voice of an older girl. There, there, dears, don't listen to him. He only wants to make you cry, same as ever. A bully, even in here. I'm no bully. I've hurt no one, the petulant boy replied. I don't like him making it worse than it is when it's already bad enough. It wouldn't be that bad if it weren't for you always telling them how bad it is. Me? What about you? I never... Gorlin cut through the bickering with a plucked high note 
which he held and shook so that it bound the dark together with one pure sound. Do y'all hear that? he asked as the note faded. Scattered murmurs of assent floated back to him. It sounded as if they were all around him in the dark. That's what we need, he said. We need to move together if we wish to get out of this place. Out? You obviously haven't been here very long. There is no out. There is no place. This is all of it, mate. Shut up, said the girl who'd stood up to the bully before. Just listen to him. He's making more sense than you have in a long time. You need to stop arguing, Gorlin said. You need to start listening. Just listen to the music and move toward it. I'm going to play now, all right? I'm going to play, and I want you, all of you, to just come toward the sound. We've tried this before, someone said. We've tried talking each other through it. But this isn't talking, said another. This is music. It's really, it's already different. Can't you tell? Exactly, said yet another. What do we have to lose? Mommy! Gorlin played till their chattering subsided and kept playing. He hummed along with it a bit, but realized the pure tones of the Edeldamer were strong enough to summon them. They needed the unadulterated tones to make up for the loss of their most relied-on sense. It was quite some time before he admitted to himself that it was not working. The children began to state the obvious long before he could bring himself to agree with them. Silencing his instrument, he again sat and pondered the possibilities. Told you, said the sourest of the voices. Still, we had to try. There's been nothing else to try for the longest time. How long have you been here? Gorlin asked. We don't know. How long is long? All we know is some have been here longer than others. I was first, said the boy with the sour voice. I was last, said the smallest voice. And you came here how? He promised us things. He who? Gorlin asked. The one we're in, of course. Before he swallowed us up, he asked us to sneak in and play with him. He said he had secret things for us. He said to tell no one. He was clever. Teacher didn't know he could even speak. And he always waited till there was a stranger in town, so blame never fell on him. You've put all this together, have you? Gorlin said. What else have we to do but compare stories? Sit here in the dark and sulk and wait and talk and sometimes shout? We call and call and nobody hears us? Gorlin thought of the children's voices he heard, attributed to the ugly child's gift for mimicry actually owed entirely to his diet. And how do you live? What do you eat? Oh, gods, no, please don't say it. Oh, ooh, no, don't talk of it. Anything's better than pie. He heard them gagging at the sound. Huge chunks of it raining down on us. Halves of pies, hunks of sweet and sour stem. Meringues and creams and pickles half chewed and the worst of it. But if you're hungry enough, you'll eat it. I never thought I'd miss eating vegetables. Me neither. Gorlin thought of the voracious child. 
the huge mouth, and of the sound it made when it wailed for food. His thoughts turned to the first time he'd heard the horrid hunger, how it had swelled up and frightened off the sounds of other children while he was playing. And what was he playing? What had he done that caused the immense egg-like being to drown them out, so they could no more hear the music than Gorlin could hear them? Then he remembered the rondel, the round, the choir waiting for voices to join in. Perhaps it was not the music then. I have another idea, he said. Something to try. Are you willing to try? Does it mean eating pie? Gorlin chuckled. Hardly, and mentally banned himself from ever playing the pie-so-long song for this crowd. Do you know what a rondel is? Miss Tordacio taught us. She sings them. We know. Can you name one you all know? A little while ago we heard one. Heard someone singing. Was that you? I believe it was, Gorlin said. I was singing for you without knowing it. Would you like to sing that one? Oh, we started to, but then the sound went away and we couldn't hear a thing when we started howling to drown it out. It was all that terrible sound in here, and then when it finally quit, we couldn't hear you anymore. Well, you'll hear me now. What I want you to do is sing and not stop. I'll start you off playing along with you, and then I'm going to do something else with my Edeldommer. I want you just to listen to each other, keep the rondel going as long and as strong as you can, and ignore everything else. Do you think you can do that? We can. Miss taught us. We're good at it. All right, Gorlin said. Now here goes. He began to play the rondel he'd picked out earlier, weaving his voice through the tune. Voice by voice, the children joined him. This time, he felt the darkness solidify. He could hear their locations in the dark. Their own voices gave them a location, a bearings, by which they could make out their relation to the others. Without his even urging it, he could sense them moving closer to him, closer to each other, drawing in. The round of voices was sketching a tightening circle of beings as well. Voice by voice, they drew themselves together until he could feel them around him. It was at the center of the round, the voices swirling and spiraling, and it felt so solid he knew he could finally take his next step. He silenced the strings and waited to make sure the children would not stop for even an instant. They hardly seemed to notice the Edeldommer's absence. Gorlin twisted the pegs, loosening some wires, tightening others. When he thought he had gauged things just right, he struck the strings with the edge of his gargoyle hand. The racket cut through the seamless shifting beauty of the children's voice. It was a chilling, racking sound designed to set teeth on edge, the sort of noise that would make dogs howl. Dogs and other things. A slight tremor passed through the rondel but it recovered instantly even as Gorlin began to draw long, screeching wails from his strings. A large tremor, verging on violet, passed through whatever it was he sat on. 
With a grin, he twisted a peg and plucked a triad of disharmonious wires, the sound almost agony, even for him. Then came the howl. Light suddenly shone in on them, as if a boulder had rolled away from the mouth of a cave. It was pale, wavery, like the glow of a distant candle, but his eyes were so steeped in darkness that even the faint illumination felt like a beam of a lighthouse sweeping over them. He could see the faces of the children, dozens of them, caught and lit up, eyes gleaming, mouths open in song. They all saw each other at the same time, and with the recognition came movement. They had gathered in a circle like a manifestation of the rondel, and now they moved together all as one toward the light. The glow began to dim, but Gorlin plucked the strings again, and the brightness increased. Ahead of them, he saw the courtyard now. He saw a couple lamps held in wavering hands. He saw faces looking this way and heard muffled shrieks of disbelief. As they reached the threshold of the enormous, howling mouth, more lamps were lit, and grieving parents, faced with hope, pushed forward in shock. The children could contain themselves no longer. As they dashed forward, they let off singing. The rondel collapsed. Gorlin watched them rush into welcoming arms there in the school courtyard and ceased plucking. The darkness sealed him in the mouth nearly lopping him in two, but that he stumbled backward into darkness. His edeldomer fell from his hand. He saw it clatter onto the flagstones, just out of reach. Then the mouth sealed him in again. That was a terrible moment, and an endless wait that might have been merely seconds. He had but one voice, after all. He could not find his way out alone. But then the light came, many hands prying on the mouth, the adults of children pushing boldly with all their strength, together opening a passage. In the voice of Ansela, in her best stern schoolmarm intonation, ordering the disobedient child to spit it out right this instant, there formed a tiny, niggardly passage through which he dragged himself. Gorlin lay in the square for a moment, hardly believing he was free, until he saw Ansela leaning over him. The children reunited, parents still running, weeping to reclaim their lost young, and variations of one particular conversation. Come away now, love. Mummy will bake you a marvelous pie. Please, no, no, Mama, never again. No pie, no more pie, forever. In the end, only one orphan lay unclaimed, although hardly forgotten. The child, so immense earlier that evening, was now a withered, flaccid sack of skin, hardly enough to fill a gentleman's cap. It resembled the shreds of a rubbery shroud. Gorlin thought he should be the one to go toward it, but as soon as he made a move in its direction, it drew itself across the courtyard like a shifting puddle. Disdaining to use the willow as a ladder, it wriggled its way up through cracks in the old wall and slithered over the top, heading toward 
whatever slimy rock-filled mountain fastness it had crawled out of. Ansela Cordaccio, her many ribbons fluttering, her pack of students accompanying them with great merriment and echoes of last night's rondel, kissed Gorlin on the cheek and linked her arm in his as they strolled out through the wide, open gate. He would return the way he'd come and pick up another more promising path that was the extent of his plan. I assume you no longer wish me to present your vitae at any future institutions I may come across. Goodness, no, she said, smiling down at her children as if they were all her own. I have more than enough work here to keep me busy. This is the job I came for. Now I can finally do it. Thanks to you, Gorlin. She kissed his other cheek. The children and I, and all of the villagers, well, you will be long remembered in Glower, I can assure you. Glower, he said. What is that? She stared at him, baffled. Why, the village, of course. What did you think it was called? In reply, Gorlin pointed toward the sign, barely in sight down the path. And what is that? The village marker. One moment. She turned to the children. You wait here, children. I'll be right back. She walked with him down to the turning of the path, where he pointed to the sign that read, C-H-I-L-D-R-U-N. Children. There, he said. The name of the village. I thought it might be a misspelling, but... How do you get Glower out of that? She laughed into her hand. I've never seen that before. Someone fleeing must have put it there. Look again, Mr. Fizzenworth. She leaned forward, tugging her crayon on the end of its lace so that she could add two red corrective marks to the sign. It's not misspelled, she said, simply poorly punctuated. Look, child, exclamation mark, space, run, exclamation mark. A wandering bard with a stone hand ends up the Pied Piper of Lost Children. Who'd have thought a rousing round of row, row, row your boat could end up being a lifesaver? I look forward to reading more of Gorlin Visenfirth, the bard with the gargoyle hand. If you enjoyed children, be sure to check out the other Gorlin stories. Please remember that Farfetch Fables operates under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivative 3.0 license, which means you can download the content and share it around, but don't change it or sell it. Copyright belongs to the author. If you like what you hear, please consider making a donation to the District of Wonders. The buttons are on the website. So please take a moment and give a little something if you can. We'll be back next week with more far-fetched fables. Remember to keep your Edeldomer handy, always carry extra strings, and don't be afraid to play the occasional disharmonious chord. That awful racket might someday save a life. Until next time, take care. Bye now. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.wonders.com.
districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 